This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, how are you? Welcome to the program. Hope you'll stay with us for the duration. We're here for a good time, not a long time. Uh, I, I'm getting uh, tons and tons of email. You know, I it's hard for me sometimes to keep track of when the Conspiracy Show on television is airing uh, on, on Vision TV here across Canada because it's it's in repeats. We're sort of in hiatus, season three, coming soon. There'll be an announcement. But meanwhile, the first, I guess it's 31 episodes, are sort of in constant rotation on, on, on Vision Television. So check your local listings. But I always know when it's playing because then I start getting tons of emails uh, of people uh, wanting to, uh, to, to weigh in on various topics. Uh, here's one on uh, reincarnation from Valerie. I don't believe in reincarnation because I believe in the Holy Bible. We live only once under the sun. I believe that people who are unsure of God's existence or who haven't read the Bible are the people who would grasp onto the idea of reincarnation besides Jesus taught being born again of the Holy Spirit, not reincarnation. So there's Valerie. Thank you for that. Uh, and uh, then I had uh, someone with a... Fa- I, I don't know if I... I can't read this one on the air because uh, he, he goes so far as to name names and institutions here in Toronto, but it has something to do with MK Ultra. Uh, and uh, electronic mind control, something that we've discussed uh, on a recent episode as well of the TV show. Thank you for that. And and finally, I got an email just the other day, uh, a, a gentleman who said, um, you've got too much hair. You look like you're wearing a toupee. I can't take you seriously. Get a haircut. <laughs> so I'm taking that under advisement. Thank you for that. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the program. And uh, a very special hello and welcome to the folks down at uh, KWTOAM 560 in Springfield, Missouri, our newest affiliate and member of the Conspiracy Show family. So to everyone listening uh, in the coming weeks and months on KWTOAM 560 in Springfield, salute, as they used to say on Hee Haw. Uh, And uh, it's so good to have you aboard. Thank you. All right. We, uh, in fact, I think my next guest is, um, I'm going to find out where he's from. I think he's from Asheville, North Carolina, which is, uh, of course, one of our affiliates down there at WZGM or WZGM AM 1350. But we'll find out in a few moments uh, when he joins us uh, to talk about 
This is a rather interesting take on the whole UFO phenomenon. And as my good friend Victor Vigiani says, who's listening down in Florida on a little golfing uh, holiday, when we finally find out, you know, when, when the big day comes, disclosure or if it ever comes, when we truly find out what's behind this UFO phenomenon, it probably will be nothing, uh, you know, what we believe. Uh, and my next guest probably concurs with that. In fact, as I say, he has a rather interesting uh, take on that, and we're about to delve into that right now. The possibilities are endless, and they're already here, he says. He is the author of The UFO Singularity. How near is the singularity? Why are past unexplained phenomena changing our future? And where will transcending the bounds of current thinking lead? Mika Hanks was held or has held a long fascination with the more unique scientific mysteries this world has to offer. He's a self-proclaimed but not self-righteous skeptic. He works as a writer and researcher as well as a radio personality whose work addresses a variety of unexplained phenomena. Over the last decade, his research has taken him into the studies of the more esoteric realms of the strange and unusual, as well as cultural phenomena. Human history and the prospects of our technological future as a species, as influenced by scientists and uh, by science, rather, we are... um, about to get into a conversation about whether or not UFOs may in fact be terrestrial in origin, possibly originating from our own technological advancement at some point in the future. After the singularity has been reached, let's find out what the singularity is all about. Mika Hanks, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me tonight. Good to have you aboard. And uh, now... Uh, I think I read somewhere that you that you hail from Asheville, North Carolina. Is that true? That is correct. Yeah, I am uh, from Asheville, the sweet sunny south down here. It's a great place to be. And, of course, you know, I, I know you have uh, one of your affiliate stations located in this area, as you had correctly said. So, uh, yeah, the folks down here, I don't know how many of them are going to uh, be familiar with Micah Hanks and his work, uh, you know, but I, I actually did work in radio a bit here in this market just as well. So some of them may know, and for those who don't, well, it will be an all-new adventure, right? <laughs> oh, well, you've got the pipes for radio. You've got a great voice. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> so, so Micah, yeah, we, uh, folks can listen in uh, down there at uh, WZGMAM1350. That's in the Asheville area. So what is a singularity? What does that mean exactly, Micah? Well, it's a great question and a great place to start tonight, I suppose. When I talk about singularity, there, there are a lot of different things that that can kind of entail. Uh, there's this what we call a singularity archetype, okay, where this is this this notion that humans are undergoing fundamental change and that maybe at some time in our not-too-distant future we'll undergo some kind of a, a, a very meaningful, uh, you know, a significant kind of transformation and that it will, you know, really fundamentally change who and what humans are and what our civilization actually may come to be. Uh, when it comes to the UFO singularity, I am evoking a term that's been utilized by modern transhumanists and futurologists and the like, uh, and it does come to mean essentially technological singularity, the creation of artificial intelligence or perhaps supplementing natural levels of human intelligence with advanced intelligence or technologies of the future that will allow us to reach new levels of our technological growth that we can't even conceive of right now. That essentially is what technological singularity is. And I would argue that when we look at UFO phenomenon, uh, it appears to be in most cases an intelligently controlled phenomenon, uh, often something that is also, uh, you know, some variety of sheet machinery or kind of a you know advanced uh, you know aeronautics that we don't know to exist and be available to humankind 
at present, but nonetheless something that doesn't seem so far ahead of us that we can't conceptualize aspects of the phenomenon. Uh, we're not quite there, but we're getting close, and so if it is already a technology in our midst that is a little greater than what human levels of intelligence have attained that we know of here on Earth, uh, again, I wonder how soon we might not attain those kinds of technological uh, abilities and the prowess that we see the UFOs employing already in our own future. That, in a nutshell, is the UFO singularity. Okay, so it's, it's uh, when our level of technology, I guess, sort of reaches the same level of technology as, you know, is currently being utilized by who's ever flying these craft around? Is that, is that part of the idea? That's part of the idea, yes. Because, I mean, one, would, one could make the argument that, that that has happened already. We have people like Ben Rich, who was the former uh, a chief of Skunk Works, uh, who, who said that we now have, this is going back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, said that we have the technology to fly E.T. home. This was supposedly said on his deathbed, and it's a rather enigmatic uh, statement, but one could surmise that he meant that we have the capability of interstellar travel. That's going back, again, 30, 40 years. He also said that we have things in the desert, meaning, you know, locked up in, in, in hangars, that are 50 years beyond your wildest comprehension. So... Uh, maybe we've already achieved the singularity. Is that possible? Yeah, and that's something that I get into in the book. You know, there are a lot of different ways that this might be attained. I've, I've speculated about everything from the potential for extraterrestrial visitation, which, I mean, really, there's a lot of evidence out there that kind of points us in that direction, but the burden of proof for the scientific community, uh, you know, it tends to be a little difficult for them to, to, to look at what many proclaim to be evidence of extraterrestrial intervention here on Earth already and say conclusively, yes, we can say that extraterrestrials have visited Earth. Uh, a lot of the time there seems to be this covert element to it. And yes, of course, there is this non-disclosure element just as well. These sorts of things are kept secret and there are whistleblowers and people come out and claim to have had clandestine sources or have been in that situation themselves working in you know upper echelons of government or secret organizations from which they're able to draw their own experiences but it's very difficult to validate those kinds of things because of the necessary secrecy associated with them so every now and then we do get this sort of information that points to the potential for extraterrestrial intervention or such things as reverse engineering and then there are also those potentials that may exist where we have just incredible technologies that are working behind the scenes of human or earthly origin and then of course there's also that uh and it's a little bit more difficult to pin down, perhaps more so even than an extraterrestrial intelligence. But that potential that there could be technologies from the future that might be able to work backwards in the sense that we could perceive something emanating from our technological future, time travel in essence, and that that also could constitute some of the UFO mystery. Uh, now Richard, i got to throw this thing out there real quick. You know, I got an email the other day from a, an organization called the National Atomic Testing Museum. They are apparently uh, in uh, association with the Smithsonian Institute, and uh, I get emails from these folks all the time. I, <laughs> frankly, I don't know how I got added to their email list. But, you know, they're often talking about different things, you know, like, uh, you know, Oak Ridge Laboratories and stuff like that, the Manhattan Project. Lo and behold, I get this email the other day, and the, uh, the, the, the letterhead here reads, Area 51, reverse engineering at Area 51 and the Red Eagles, distinguished lecture by T.D. Barnes and Colonel Gail Peck. And this is a lecture apparently going to be given in Las Vegas, Nevada, on February 9th at the National Atomic Testing Museum. So, obviously... There seems to be a historical interest in the potential for such things as reverse engineering and these sorts of things going on covertly. Very much, yes. It could be that these technologies are already here. So the, it sounds like the, the, this is a sort of a form of, disc, uh, of controlled disclosure 
uh, that's coming out of Area 51. Um, let me. Add, I want to. I want to definitely get on in, into a discussion about time travel. It happens to be one of my favorite topics. But uh, and and how that uh, is dealt with in the UFO singularity. Micah Hanks joining us on the line here on the Conspiracy Show. But let let me get uh, let me get uh, a take from you. What do you actually think is going on with with the UFO phenomena? Is it? I mean, do you do you have sort of a uh, a better understanding or an, a better inkling as to what it might be? Have you been able to narrow it down? Is it, are we talking about, you know, ourselves visiting the Earth from uh, from the future? Are we talking about um, extraterrestrials? Uh, could it be from the spiritual realm? What, what do you think it might be? Well, Richard, to be honest, I think it could be a lot of those kinds of things. Uh, you know, a combination of them, in other words. Uh, there are so many in this field who, who allow ego to kind of get in the way of, of, of real, logical, and what I you know, maintain is truly skeptical thought. I'm not someone who goes into this and claims to have a preconception of either belief or disbelief and then tries to just justify my own preconceptions. I go into this kind of clean slate and hope to try and find information and evidence that can help us come to a better determination of what UFOs are. Uh, you know, being a romantic at heart, I've always hoped that there might be extraterrestrial entities that are interacting with Earth in some capacity. It's on some level, I do think that that's what's going on, but I also think that probably a majority of the things that constitute UFO reports are probably, uh, if not somewhat clandestine and often nascent, you know, kind of uh, innovative new varieties of, uh, of uh, you know, aerial vehicles that we have built. Uh, they very well also may just be things that are, uh, you know, we might even call them physics aberrations, uh, non-dimensional phenomenon, different kinds of things that might not necessarily have to be alien, but that nonetheless could be something that could occur here on Earth and conform to our laws of physics, whether or not they are the known conventional laws of physics. So when it comes to defining what UFOs are, I'm not someone who claims to have contacts in government. I'm not someone who's going to tell you, look, I've got all the answers. I'm going to be someone who will say, here's what we do know. Here's what we don't know. And based on the information that we have, this is the most likely scenario. I would probably put it like this. 75 to 80 percent of most of what we see in the ufological field is probably our own. Then there's that 20 percent that probably have something to do with extraterrestrial, uh, non, uh, or rather uh, maybe we'd call it ultra-dimensional, I guess, to borrow the term that uh, John Keel used for it. Micah, let me just jump in here. Sorry, we'll get to that other 5 percent on the other side. Micah uh, Hanks is with us. The UFO singularity here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Micah Hanks is with us. He's a full-time journalist, uh, radio personality, author, investigator. And uh, he's uh, written for such prestigious magazines as Fate, 14 Times, UFO Magazine, The Journal of Anomalous Sciences, and New Dawn and has appeared on numerous TV and radio programs, including our very own The Conspiracy Show. We're talking about his new book, The UFO Singularity. Uh, I, want to, uh, I want to talk about... Oh, first of all, let's finish off that thought. So, uh, uh, how best to explain the UFO phenomena? 80, 85 percent are uh, uh, basically advanced secret um, uh, spacecraft developed here on planet Earth. Uh, and then you said, what, another 20 percent? Uh, just some... 
misidentified uh, misidentification or weather an anomaly or or how would you explain that 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 twenty percent? Well, well, I would recommend probably that that fifteen or twenty percent would be somewhere in the neighborhood of rather than being misidentified natural phenomena. That that always works into this just as well, uh, you know. And again. This, uh, justifi this justification is primarily working with those objects that are probably going to be intelligently controlled or something other than weather phenomena. I would, I would preface this all by saying that most often people are misidentifying different kinds of natural phenomena and things like that, known aircraft. This, this happens, and there's nothing dismissive about saying such because if you're a good UFO researcher, you're going to take into account the fact that people do that. But of those that remain unidentified, again, I would say that probably around 80% are going to be uh, clandestine technologies from here on Earth, and then we've got 15 to 20 percent, they're going to probably be something else. Some of those may constitute physics aberrations. Some of those may also constitute, dare I say, extraterrestrial, uh, you know, types of craft and things like that. I'm not going to throw any babies out with the bathwater, but, you know, in my uh, way of seeing things, I think that, uh, you know, rather than looking at everything that we term as being ufological in nature and trying to uh, presuppose that they are all extraterrestrial, you know, I'm going to try and look at this more along the lines of what technologies we know to exist. And in my book, of course, The UFO Singularity, I also look at what technological trends we are seeing today that might lead to technologies of tomorrow that without question will help us determine what really lies at the bottom of this UFO mystery. So that, in essence, is the way that I t tend to try and look at this. I do call that skeptical, but as you can see, I'm not ruling out those kinds of possibilities. I think that's a very skeptical approach, and it's also keeping things open-minded and open to different possibilities that many of these of the skeptical debunker ilk rule out immediately by trying to literally go into this with a presupposition that no such thing as extraterrestrial life or anything else beyond the known laws of physics might exist here in our midst already. Uh, I'm fascinated by the, the idea that uh, UFOs likely terrestrial in origin, possibly originating from our own future. So walk me through that. I mean, uh, how does that work when, for example, uh, my understanding of time travel is if you were, let's say we were to construct uh, a device that would allow us to travel into the future, uh, you could not, or travel back in time, uh, you could not travel back further than the date at which the time device, time, time travel device was switched on. So if we developed uh, the capability for time travel tomorrow, then someone from the future, the furthest they could travel back would be, my understanding would be, uh, let's say, you know, January 21st, 2013. Does that make sense? Uh, well, yeah, it does, uh, according to, you know, one potential model for how time travel may work. You know, there are so many different opinions about this, and this is what's very interesting is that on a philosophical level, Richard, what we often see is that there is a, um, you know, there's this kind of a, uh, you know, I guess um, academics today tend not to like to speculate a whole lot. They, they, they want to say that, you know, we want facts and we want scientific data that backs up these sorts of things, not just, you know, guesswork. But really, in truth, educated guesswork is truly speculation. We have to get speculative uh, quite often, especially in the realms of physics, and hence we hear all the time about speculative physics, right? And in the, the realms of speculative physics, we have tried to essentially work our minds around uh, the concept of time, which, keep in mind, and fundamentally we have to remember this is something that is perceived by, if not entirely kind of an artifact that stems from human perception. 
when we try and work around such things as grandfather paradoxes and, and all these sorts of things, for instance, I travel back in time, I cause some sort of a change in the, in the, in the lineage of time that leads to the birth of my grandfather. He is no, no longer born and no longer a part of this flow of time, and therefore I destroy myself, and there's this dis destruction of the space-time continuum. I think that that's more of kind of a Hollywood interpretation of, of what we perceive as being time. And that truly Wait a minute. Are you saying that, that uh, the time travel hot tub, which was on television the other night, isn't science fact? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that in truth, a lot of people look at what they see in movies, and that greatly influences the way that we try and wrap our heads around a concept as esoteric as literal physical travel through time. I'm not so sure that dimensional uh, aspects would necessarily have to come into this, but of course people in trying to uh, you know, rectify the problems with such things as a grandfather paradox, they have put into the equation multiple dimensions, string theory, things like that. In my perception, uh, this and you know this is partially a hunch, and this is also based on philosophical and scientific discussions I've had with many in academia, a lot of whom are fascinated by UFO phenomena for the same reasons that I am, because they feel that these things may be hints at understanding the greater levels of reality around us, which were you know lie just outside human perception, and that is fundamentally this: that uh, you know time is again primarily an illusion. And that space and physicality also probably has an illusory nature. And once we realize that all space and time are primarily illusions that are filtered through the human perception, uh, those kinds of things, you know, begin to break down and those conventional models of time travel break yeah. down just as well. Fair enough. Micah Hanks is with us, the UFO singularity here on The Conspiracy Show. Again, if uh, UFOs or the, the pilots of these craft are in fact um, earthlings from our future traveling back, how does, for example, the abduction phenomena fit into that? Why would people from the future uh, being uh, abducting their own species and subjecting them to unimaginable horrors? Well, you know, I, I, I want to point out that uh, the, the potential that humans from the future or some technological presence from our perceptual temporal future may constitute some UFO phenomenon. That's one area that I look into into the book. When it comes to abduction, I do talk about abduction in the, in the book, and I look at it more in terms of, you know, technologies in our midst today that might be utilizing, uh, you know, different systems that could uh, account for some abduction reports. Um, now, if we were to look at this from the perspective, uh, you know, along the lines of what you outlined with your, with your question there, would humans from the future come back in time and abduct humans? And if so, for what purpose? We could speculate a lot of different kinds of things. For instance, what if they were, you know, manipulating genetics and things like that to make the human species of the future better utilizing technology that they attain, uh, you know, at that point? But then again, in terms of whether or not traveling in time would be, first of all, feasible. Second of all, if altering humans of the present day, our present day, would affect our, hu our future selves, we don't know that that would in in indeed be the case. So um, there are a number of different speculative reasons why a time traveler from the future might come back. I think that the problem is that with ufology, there are so many out there who would tell you this is obviously what's going on. If they're time travelers from the future, they're trying to make us what they are not or to make us something that they want to be. If they assume that it's an extraterrestrial equation, they would say, well, they're coming here and they're manipulating us and they're engaged in an elaborate hybridization 
you know, program or something like that. I couldn't give you evidence of either of those things, but we could speculate all day about it, just as I've done with time travel, and that's only one little piece of the greater puzzle here. My gut tells me that a lot of abductions are probably not entirely physical, and that a greater number of them probably have to do with something else that emanates from right here in our midst here on Earth today. Of course, the last year we were very much focused on uh, December 21, 2012. In your book, you sort of look at uh, 100 years hence, and uh, you talk about what human life will be like in 2112. First of all, why did you pick that date? And then let's get into a discussion about what you think life will be like in 2112 and whether or, that, whether or not that might mean that we're approaching this singularity. That's a good question. You know, uh, when we look at, again, that uh, singularity archetype, uh, and that that uh, that notion that change is inevitable and that it's going to occur and that you know any time now humans are going to become something different you know i thought it was interesting because people have appended that kind of uh, that kind of notion of a transformation to 2012 uh, initially it was thought that of course the Mayan calendar would end and that that might be of some significance. The doomsday theorists all thought, oh, well, you know, this actually means that the end of the world is actually going to transpire. And then there were others who said, well, no, the world isn't actually going to end. But looking at this logically, you know, there might still be something about 2012 that will become significant. And then it becomes a bit of a chicken before the egg argument. Uh, you know, well, did we make 2012 significant because we wanted it to be uh, or vice versa? Was it significant, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for some other reason? Either way that you want to look at it, you know, 2012 has been kind of kind of considered a, a gateway year by many, uh, especially uh, those who are more spiritual. And they look at this as a transformation period. Uh, and that is very much in keeping with that singularity archetype. Now, at the beginning of the book, I look back 100 years and begin this discussion by talking about the kinds of technology of the future that Thomas Edison had envisioned for the year 2011. He'd been asked, of course, in 1911 about what that technology might be like. And so this book being authored in 2012, I said, much like Edison, what if we look 100 years from now? What kind of technology might we suppose that we would have in our midst in, you know, 100 years, in a century? Will we, we, I mean, will we be the same sort of civilization, the same sort of physical beings that we know humans to be today? I would argue that although we may look very similar, we will be fundamentally different, and that will be as a result of advanced technologies that will not only change aspects of our physicality, but may enhance our natural levels of intelligence and perhaps even broaden our ability to perceive aspects of the reality that we think we know so well today. Uh, you, you you talk about transhumanism. I mean, do you do you see that in twenty one twelve a great many of the inhabitants of this planet will be, to a lesser or greater degree, essentially human cyborgs? There's always that possibility. I'd always uh, argue too that uh, as we uh, in th things that we have to take into consideration before I get into that really are that you know there are so many different kinds of technology on Earth today. And uh, those of the transhumanist ilk, you know, some of whom I was able to interview for this book, including uh, Ben Gertzel, Ph.D., he's an artificial intelligence expert, some who I wasn't able to in uh, interview, including Werner Vinge and uh, Ray Kurzweil, best associated with technological singularity today and author of books like The Singularity is Near. Many have proposed that because of the varieties of technology av available to us on Earth today, many are influencing each other and helping other areas grow uh, due to the innovations in these various different fields. In other words, it's kind of a cumulative growth, and therefore the rate of growth of technology is becoming greater than exponential. It's growing so much more quickly, and it's taking off at such a rate that at some point, possibly within maybe the next couple of decades, uh, our technology is really going to go through a, an incredible change, something that is difficult for us at present to even conceptualize. That, again, 
represents that technological singularity. And if indeed we utilize technologies that become so advanced, I would argue, Richard, that much of what we would consider you know, synthetic or cyborg or something like that, we may master technology to a level that it will appear or even be you know, so similar to what we would call organic that you wouldn't be able to differentiate between the two. So if we utilize technologies that are that advanced to supplement ourselves, to enhance our natural levels of intelligence, will we look like cyborgs walking around? No, we'll look like humans, but we will have attained technologies that allow us to change ourselves and perhaps effectively take evolution into our own hands. And I'll tell you this, I'm not sure that I myself am entirely comfortable with that. I don't think many people are, but I think it's also something you know, something we'll have to prepare for because it looks like it's really laying there on the horizon. Uh, I, I spoke with a, a gentleman a number of years ago at another radio station uh, from China where he's working on an artificial brain. His first name is Hugo or his last name is Hugo and I can't remember, maybe the, the name will pop uh, to my mind, but he's talking ab uh, about this uh, transhumanist movement and also artificial intelligence and he foresees a very scary scenario uh, where you will have, at one point, a certain segment of the population who are poised to uh, essentially merge their human body and their human consciousness uh, with artificial intelligence. Uh, and then you will have this other segment of the population uh, who will be so terrified of that prospect that you would essentially have two separate civilizations here on planet Earth that that what would ensue would be one of the most unimaginably horrific world wars that we've ever seen. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the planet being destroyed, essentially, the possibility of the planet being destroyed because, um, you know, of this fear. I, I want to get your, your take on that when we come back, and then we'll continue to delve into uh, the UFO singularity. Micah Hanks with us here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll make the phone lines available to you as well. And uh, you can weigh in with your thoughts. Back with more. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-740. Four seven forty. Welcome back. It was uh, Hugo de Garris, uh, I believe, was a gentleman I spoke to a number of years ago, a researcher in uh, artificial intelligence, also known as Evolvable. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. 
Hey, how are you? Welcome to the program. Hope you'll stay with us for the duration. We're here for a good time, not a long time. Uh, I, I'm getting uh, tons and tons of email. You know, I it's hard for me sometimes to keep track of when the conspiracy show on television is airing uh, on, on Vision TV here across Canada because it's, it's in repeats. We're sort of in hiatus, season three, coming soon. There'll be an announcement. But meanwhile, the first... I guess it's 31 episodes are sort of in constant rotation on, on, on Vision Television. So check your local listings. But I always know when it's playing because then I start getting tons of emails uh, of people uh, wanting to, uh, to, to weigh in on various topics. Uh, here's one on uh, reincarnation from Valerie. I don't believe in reincarnation because I believe in the Holy Bible. We live only once under the sun. I believe that people who are unsure of God's existence or who haven't read the Bible are the people who would grasp onto the idea of reincarnation besides Jesus taught being born again of the Holy Spirit, not reincarnation. So there's Valerie. Thank you for that. Uh, and uh, then I had uh, someone with a... Fa- I, I don't know if I... I can't read this one on the air because uh, he, he goes so far as to name names and institutions here in Toronto, but it has something to do with MK MKUltra uh, and uh, electronic mind control, something that we've discussed uh, on a recent episode as well of the TV show. Thank you for that. And, and finally, I got an email just the other day, uh, a, a gentleman who said... Um, you've got too much hair. You look like you're wearing a toupee. I can't take you seriously. Get a haircut. <laughs> so I'm taking that under advisement. Thank you for that. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the program. And uh, a very special hello and welcome to the folks down at KWTOAM 560 in Springfield, Missouri, our newest affiliate and member of the Conspiracy Show family. So to everyone listening... Uh, in the coming weeks and months on KWTOAM 560 in Springfield. Salute, as they used to say on Hee Haw. Uh, and uh, it's so good to have you aboard. Thank you. All right. We, uh, in fact, I think my next guest is, um, I, I'm going to find out where he's from. I think he's from Asheville, North Carolina, which is, uh, of course, one of our affiliates down there at WZGM or WZGM AM 1350. But we'll find out in a few moments uh, when he joins us uh, to talk about. This is a rather interesting take on the whole UFO phenomenon. And as my good friend Victor Vigiani says, who's listening down in Florida on a little golfing uh, holiday, when we finally find out, you know, when, when the big day comes, disclosure or if it ever comes, when we truly find out what's behind this UFO phenomena, it probably will be nothing, uh, you know, what we believe. Uh, and my next guest probably concurs with that. In fact, as I say, he has a rather interesting uh, take on that, and we're about to delve into that right now. The possibilities are endless, and they're already here, he says. He is the author of The UFO Singularity. How near is the singularity? Why are past unexplained phenomena changing our future? And where will transcending the bounds of current thinking lead? Micah Hanks was held or has held a long fascination with the more unique scientific mysteries this world has to offer. He's a self-proclaimed but not self-righteous skeptic. He works as a writer and researcher as well as a radio personality whose work addresses a variety of unexplained phenomena. Over the last decade, his research has taken him into the studies of the more esoteric realms of the strange and unusual, as well as cultural phenomena. Human history and the prospects of our technological future as a species, as influenced by scientists, and uh, by science, rather, we are... um, 
about to get into a conversation about whether or not UFOs may in fact be terrestrial in origin, possibly originating from our own technological advancement at some point in the future. After the singularity has been reached, let's find out what the singularity is all about. Mika Hanks, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me tonight. Good to have you aboard. And uh, now, uh, I think I read somewhere that you, that you hail from Asheville, North Carolina. Is that true? That is correct. Yeah, I am uh, from Asheville, the sweet sunny south down here. It's a great place to be. And, of course, you know, I, I know you have uh, one of your affiliate stations located in this area, as you had correctly said. So, uh, yeah, the folks down here, I don't know how many of them are going to uh, be familiar with Micah Hanks and his work, uh, you know, but I, I actually did work in radio a bit here in this market just as well. So some of them may know, and for those who don't, well, it will be an all-new adventure, right? <laughs> oh, well, you've got the pipes for radio. You've got a great voice. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> so, so Micah, yeah, uh, folks can listen in uh, down there at uh, WZGMAM1350. That's in the Asheville area. So what is a singularity? What does that mean exactly, Micah? Well, it's a great question and a great place to start tonight, I suppose. When I talk about singularity, there, there are a lot of different things that that can kind of entail. Uh, there's this what we call a singularity archetype, okay, where this is this this notion that humans are undergoing fundamental change and that maybe at some time in our not-too-distant future we'll undergo some kind of a, a, a very meaningful, uh, you know, a significant kind of transformation and that it will, you know, really fundamentally change who and what humans are and what our civilization actually may come to be. Uh, when it comes to the UFO singularity, I am evoking a term that's been utilized by modern transhumanists and futurologists and the like, uh, and it does come to mean essentially technological singularity, the creation of artificial intelligence or perhaps supplementing natural levels of human intelligence with advanced intelligence or technologies of the future that allow us to reach new levels of our technological growth that we can't even conceive of right now. That essentially is what technological singularity is. And I would argue that when we look at UFO phenomenon, uh, it appears to be in most cases an intelligently controlled phenomenon, uh, often something that is also, uh, you know, some variety of sheet machinery or kind of a you know advanced uh, you know aeronautics that we don't know to exist and be available to humankind at present but nonetheless something that doesn't seem so far ahead of us that we can't conceptualize aspects of the phenomenon uh, we're not quite there but we're getting close and so if it is already a technology in our midst that is a little greater than what human levels of intelligence have attained that we know of here on earth uh, again I wonder how soon we might not attain those kinds of technological uh, abilities and the prowess that we see the UFOs employing already in our own future. That, in a nutshell, is the UFO singularity. Okay, so it's, it's uh, when our level of technology, I guess, sort of reaches the same level of technology as, you know, is currently being utilized by who's ever flying these craft around. Is that, is that part of the idea? That's part of the idea, yes. Because, I mean, one, would, one could make the argument that, that that has happened already. We have people like Ben Rich, who was the former uh, a chief of Skunk Works, uh, who, who said that we now have, this is going back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, said that we have the technology to fly E.T. home. This was supposedly said on his deathbed, and it's a rather enigmatic uh, statement, but one could surmise that he meant that we have the capability of interstellar travel. That's going back... Again, 30, 40 years. He also said that we have things in the desert, meaning, you know, locked up in, in, in hangars, that are 50 years beyond your wildest comprehension. So uh, maybe we've already achieved the singularity. Is that possible? 
Yeah, and that's something that I get into in the book. You know, there are a lot of different ways that this might be attained. I've I've speculated about everything from the potential for extraterrestrial visitation, which, I mean, really, there's a lot of evidence out there that kind of points us in that direction, but the burden of proof for the scientific community, uh, you know, it tends to be a little difficult for them to, to, to look at what many proclaim to be evidence of extraterrestrial intervention here on Earth already and say conclusively, yes, we can say that extraterrestrials have visited Earth. Uh, a lot of the time there seems to be this covert element to it, and yes, of course, there is this non-disclosure element just as well. These sorts of things are kept secret, and there are whistleblowers, and people come out and claim to have had clandestine sources or have been in that situation themselves working in you know upper echelons of government or secret organizations from which they're able to draw their own experiences but it's very difficult to validate those kinds of things because of the necessary secrecy associated with them so every now and then we do get this sort of information that points to the potential for extraterrestrial intervention or such things as reverse engineering and then there are also those potentials that may exist where we have just incredible technologies that are working behind the scenes of human or earthly origin and then of course there's also that uh and it's a little bit more difficult to pin down, perhaps more so even than an extraterrestrial intelligence, but that potential that there could be technologies from the future that might be able to work backwards in the sense that we could perceive something emanating from our technological future, time travel in essence, and that that also could constitute some of the UFO mystery. Uh, now Richard, i got to throw this thing out there real quick. You know, I got an email the other day from a, an organization called the National Atomic Testing Museum. They are apparently uh, in uh, association with the Smithsonian Institute, and uh, I get emails from these folks all the time. I, <laughs> frankly, I don't know how I got added to their email list. But, you know, they're often talking about different things, you know, like, uh, you know, Oak Ridge Laboratories and stuff like that, the Manhattan Project. Lo and behold, I get this email the other day, and the, uh, the, the, the letterhead here reads, Area 51, reverse engineering at Area 51 and the Red Eagles, distinguished lecture by T.D. Barnes and Colonel Gail Peck. And this is a lecture apparently going to be given in Las Vegas, Nevada, on February 9th at the National Atomic Testing Museum. So, obviously... There seems to be a historical interest in the potential for such things as reverse engineering and these sorts of things going on covertly. Very much yes. It could be that these technologies are already here. So th it sounds like th th this is a sort of a form of, dis uh, of controlled disclosure uh, that's coming out of Area 51. Um, let me. Add, I want to. I want to definitely get on in, into a discussion about time travel. It happens to be one of my favorite topics, but uh, and and how that uh, is dealt with in the UFO singularity. Micah Hanks joining us on the line here on the Conspiracy Show. But let let me get uh, let me get uh, a take from you. What do you actually think is going on with with the UFO phenomena? Is it? I mean, do you do you have sort of a uh, a better understanding or an, a better inkling as to what it might be? Have you been able to narrow it down? Is it, are we talking about, you know, ourselves visiting the Earth from, uh, from the future? Are we talking about um, extraterrestrials? Uh, could it be from the spiritual realm? What, what do you think it might be? Well, Richard, to be honest, I think it could be a lot of those kinds of things, uh, you know, a combination of them, in other words. Uh, there are so many in this field who, who allow ego to kind of get in the way of, of, of real, logical, and what I, you know, maintain is truly skeptical thought. I'm not someone who goes into this and claims to have a preconception of either belief or disbelief and then tries to just justify my own preconceptions. I go into this kind of clean slate and hope to try and find information and evidence that can help us come to a better determination 
of what UFOs are. Uh, you know, being a romantic at heart, I've always hoped that there might be extraterrestrial entities that are interacting with Earth in some capacity. It's, on some level, I do think that that's what's going on, but I also think that probably a majority of the things that constitute UFO reports are probably, uh, if not somewhat clandestine and often nascent, you know, kind of uh, innovative new varieties of, uh, of uh, you know, aerial vehicles that we have built. Uh, they very well also may just be things that are, uh, you know, we might even call them physics aberrations, uh, non-dimensional phenomenon, different kinds of things that might not necessarily have to be alien, but that nonetheless could be something that could occur here on Earth and conform to our laws of physics, whether or not they are the known conventional laws of physics. So when it comes to defining what UFOs are, I'm not someone who claims to have contacts in government. I'm not someone who's going to tell you, look, I've got all the answers. I'm going to be someone who will say, here's what we do know. Here's what we don't know. And based on the information that we have, this is the most likely scenario. I would probably put it like this. 75 to 80 percent of most of what we see in the ufological field is probably our own. Then there's that 20 percent that probably have something to do with extraterrestrial, uh, non, uh, or rather uh, maybe we'd call it ultra-dimensional, I guess, to borrow the term that uh, John Keel used for it. Micah, let me just jump in here. Sorry, we'll get to that other 5 percent on the other side. Micah uh, Hanks is with us. The UFO Singularity here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Micah Hanks is with us. He's a full-time journalist, uh, radio personality, author, investigator. And uh, he's uh, written for such prestigious magazines as Fate, 14 Times, UFO Magazine, The Journal of Anomalous Sciences, and New Dawn. And has appeared on numerous TV and radio programs, including our very own The Conspiracy Show. We're talking about his new book, The UFO Singularity. Uh, I, want to, uh, I want to talk about... Oh, first of all, let's finish off that thought. So, uh, uh, how best to explain the UFO phenomena? 80, 85% are uh, uh, basically advanced secret um, uh, spacecraft developed here on planet Earth. Uh, and then you said, what, another 20%? Uh, just some misidentified uh, misidentification or weather an anomaly or or how would you explain that 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 20 percent well, well i would recommend probably that that 15 or 20 percent would be somewhere in the neighborhood of rather than being misidentified natural phenomena that, that always works into this just as well uh you know and again this uh, justifi this justification is primarily working with those objects that are probably going to be intelligently controlled or something other than weather phenomena. I would I would preface this all by saying that most often people are misidentifying different kinds of natural phenomena and things like that. Known aircraft. This this happens, and there's nothing dismissive about saying such because if you're a good UFO researcher, you're going to take into account the fact that people do that. But of those that remain unidentified, again, I would say that probably around 80% are going to be uh, clandestine technologies from 
from here on Earth, and then we've got 15 to 20 percent that are going to probably be something else. Some of those may constitute physics aberrations. Some of those may also constitute, dare I say, extraterrestrial uh, you know, types of craft and things like that. I'm not going to throw any babies out with the bathwater, but you know, in my uh, way of seeing things, I think that uh, you know, rather than looking at everything that we term as being ufological in nature and trying to uh, presuppose that they are all extraterrestrial, you know, I'm going to try and look at this more along the lines of what technologies we know to exist. And in my book, of course, The UFO Singularity, I also look at what technological trends we are seeing today that might lead to technologies of tomorrow that without question will help us determine what really lies at the bottom of this UFO mystery. So that, in essence, is the way that I t tend to try and look at this. I do call that skeptical, but as you can see, I'm not ruling out those kinds of possibilities. I think that's a very skeptical approach, and it's also keeping things open-minded and open to different possibilities that many of these of the skeptical debunker ilk rule out immediately by trying to literally go into this with a presupposition that no such thing as extraterrestrial life or anything else beyond the known laws of physics might exist here in our midst already. Uh, I'm fascinated by the, the idea that uh, UFOs likely terrestrial in origin, possibly originating from our own future. So walk me through that. I mean, uh, how does that work when, for example, uh, my understanding of time travel is if you were, let's say we were to construct uh, a device that would allow us to travel into the future, uh, you could not, or travel back in time, uh, you could not travel back further than the date at which the time device, time, time travel device was switched on. So if we developed uh, the capability for time travel tomorrow, then someone from the future, the furthest they could travel back would be, my understanding would be, uh, let's say, you know, January 21st, 2013. Does that make sense? Uh, well, yeah, it does, uh, according to, you know, one potential model for how time travel may work. You know, there are so many different opinions about this, and this is what's very interesting is that on a philosophical level, Richard, what we often see is that there is a, um, you know, there's this kind of a, uh, you know, I guess um, academics today tend not to like to speculate a whole lot. They, they, they want to say that, you know, we want facts and we want scientific data that backs up these sorts of things, not just, you know, guesswork. But really, in truth, educated guesswork is truly speculation. We have to get speculative uh, quite often, especially in the realms of physics, and hence we hear all the time about speculative physics, right? And in the, the realms of speculative physics, we have tried to essentially work our minds around uh, the concept of time, which, keep in mind, and fundamentally we have to remember this is something that is perceived by, if not entirely kind of an artifact that stems from human perception. When we try and work around such things as grandfather paradoxes and, and all these sorts of things, for instance, I travel back in time, I cause some sort of a change in the, in the, in the lineage of time that leads to the birth of my grandfather. He is no, no longer born and no longer a part of this flow of time, and therefore I destroy myself, and there's this dis destruction of the space-time continuum. I think that that's more of kind of a Hollywood interpretation of, of what we perceive as being time. And that truly Wait a minute. Are you saying that, that uh, the time travel hot tub, which was on on television the other night isn't science fact <laughs> <laughs> well you know, I think that in truth a lot of people look at what they see in movies and that greatly influences the way that we try and wrap around our heads around a concept as esoteric as literal physical travel through time I'm not so sure that dimensional 
uh, aspects would necessarily have to come into this, but of course, people in trying to, uh, you know, rectify the problems with such things as a grandfather paradox, they have put into the equation multiple dimensions, string theory, things like that. In my perception, uh, this and you know, this is partially a hunch, and this is also based on philosophical and scientific discussions I've had with many in academia, a lot of whom are fascinated by UFO phenomena for the same reasons that I am, because they feel that these things may be hints at understanding the greater levels of reality around us, which were, you know, lie just outside human perception. And that is fundamentally this: that uh, you know, time is again primarily an illusion. And that space and physicality also probably has an illusory nature. And once we realize that all space and time are primarily illusions that are filtered through the human perception, uh, those kinds of things, you know, begin to break down and those conventional models of time travel break yeah. down just as well. Fair enough. Micah Hanks is with us, the UFO singularity here on The Conspiracy Show. Again, if uh, UFOs or the, the pilots of these craft are in fact um, earthlings from our future traveling back, how does, for example, the abduction phenomena fit into that? Why would people from the future uh, being uh, abducting their own species and subjecting them to unimaginable horrors? Well, you know, I, I, I want to point out that uh, the the potential that humans from the future or some technological presence from our perceptual temporal future may constitute some UFO phenomenon. That's one area that I look into into the book. When it comes to abduction, I do talk about abduction in the, in the book, and I look at it more in terms of, you know, technologies in our midst today that might be utilizing, uh, you know, different systems that could uh, account for some abduction reports. Um, now, if we were to look at this from the perspective, uh, you know, along the lines of what you outlined with your, with your question there, would humans from the future come back in time and abduct humans? And if so, for what purpose? We could speculate a lot of different kinds of things. For instance, what if they were, you know, m manipulating genetics and things like that to make the human species of the future better utilizing technology that they attain, uh, you know, at that point? But then again, <laughs> in terms of whether or not traveling in time would be, first of all, feasible. Second of all, if altering humans of the present day, our present day, would affect our, hu our future selves, we don't know that that would in in indeed be the case. So um, there are a number of different speculative reasons why a time traveler from the future might come back. I think that the problem is that with ufology, there are so many out there who would tell you this is obviously what's going on. If they're time travelers from the future, they're trying to make us what they are not or to make us something that they want to be. If they assume that it's an extraterrestrial equation, they would say, well, they're coming here and they're manipulating us and they're engaged in an elaborate hybridization you know, program or something like that. I couldn't give you evidence of either of those things, but we could speculate all day about it, just as I've done with time travel, and that's only one little piece of the greater puzzle here. My gut tells me that a lot of abductions are probably not entirely physical, and that a greater number of them probably have to do with something else that emanates from right here in our midst here on Earth today. Of course, the last year we were very much focused on uh, December 21, 2012. In your book, you sort of look a, uh, 100 years hence, and uh, you talk about what human life will be like in 2112. First of all, why did you pick that date? And then let's get into a discussion about what you think life will be like in 2112 and whether or, that, whether or not that might mean that we're approaching this singularity. That's a good question. You know, uh, when we look at, again, that uh, singularity archetype, 
uh, and that that uh, that notion that change is inevitable and that it's going to occur and that you know any time now humans are going to become something different you know i thought it was interesting because people have appended that kind of uh, that kind of notion of a transformation to 2012 uh, initially it was thought that of course the Mayan calendar would end and that that might be of some significance. The doomsday theorists all thought, oh, well, you know, this actually means that the end of the world is actually going to transpire. And then there were others who said, well, no, the world isn't actually going to end. But looking at this logically, you know, there might still be something about 2012 that will become significant. And then it becomes a bit of a chicken before the egg argument. Uh, you know, well, did we make 2012 significant because we wanted it to be uh, or vice versa? Was it significant, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for some other reason? Either way that you want to look at it, you know, 2012 has been kind of, kind of considered a a gateway year by many, uh, especially uh, those who are more spiritual, and they look at this as a transformation period, uh, and that is very much in keeping with that singularity archetype. Now, at the beginning of the book, I look back 100 years and begin this discussion by talking about the kinds of technology of the future that Thomas Edison had envisioned for the year. 2011. He'd been asked, of course, in 1911 about what that technology might be like. And so this book being authored in 2012, I said, much like Edison, what if we look 100 years from now? What kind of technology might we suppose that we would have in our midst in, you know, 100 years, in a century? Will we, we, I mean, will we be the same sort of civilization, the same sort of physical beings that we know humans to be today? I would argue that although we may look very similar, we will be fundamentally different, and that will be as a result of advanced technologies that will not only change aspects of our physicality, but may enhance our natural levels of intelligence and perhaps even broaden our ability to perceive aspects of the reality that we think we know so well today. Uh, you, you you talk about transhumanism. I mean, do you do you see that in twenty one twelve a great many of the inhabitants of this planet will be, to a lesser or greater degree, essentially human cyborgs? There's always that possibility. I'd always uh, argue too that uh, as we uh, in th things that we have to take into consideration before I get into that really are that you know there are so many different kinds of technology on Earth today. And uh, those of the transhumanist ilk, you know, some of whom I was able to interview for this book, including uh, Ben Gertzel, Ph.D., he's an artificial intelligence expert, some who I wasn't able to in uh, interview, including Werner Vinge and uh, Ray Kurzweil, best associated with technological singularity today and author of books like The Singularity is Near. Many have proposed that because of the varieties of technology av available to us on Earth today, many are influencing each other and helping other areas grow uh, due to the innovations in these various different fields. In other words, it's kind of a cumulative growth, and therefore the rate of growth of technology is becoming greater than exponential. It's growing so much more quickly, and it's taking off at such a rate that at some point, possibly within maybe the next couple of decades, uh, our technology is really going to go through a, an incredible change, something that is difficult for us at present to even conceptualize. That, again, represents that technological singularity. And if indeed we utilize technologies that become so advanced, I would argue, Richard, that much of what we would consider you know, synthetic or cyborg or something like that, we may master technology to a level that it will appear or even be you know, so similar to what we would call organic that you wouldn't be able to differentiate between the two. So if we utilize technologies that are that advanced to supplement ourselves, to enhance our natural levels of intelligence, will we look like cyborgs walking around? No, we'll look like humans, but we will have attained technologies that allow us to change ourselves and perhaps effectively take evolution into our own hands. And I'll tell you this, I'm not sure that I myself am entirely comfortable with that. I don't think many people are, but I think it's also something 
you know, something we'll have to prepare for because it looks like it's really laying there on the horizon. Uh, I, I, I spoke with a, a gentleman a number of years ago at another radio station uh, from China where he's working on an artificial brain. His first name is Hugo or his last name is Hugo, and I can't remember. Maybe the, the name will pop uh, to my mind. But he's talking ab- uh, about this uh, transhumanist movement and also artificial intelligence. And he foresees a very scary scenario uh, where you will have, at one point, a certain segment of the population who are poised to uh, essentially merge their human body and their human consciousness uh, with artificial intelligence. Uh, and then you will have this other segment of the population uh, who will be so terrified of that prospect that you would essentially have two separate civilizations here on planet Earth that that what would ensue would be one of the most unimaginably horrific world wars that we've ever seen. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, the the planet being destroyed, essentially, the possibility of the planet being destroyed because, um, you know, of this fear. I want to get your your take on that when we come back, and then we'll continue to delve into uh, the UFO singularity. Micah Hanks with us here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll make the phone lines available to you as well. And uh, you can weigh in with your thoughts. Back with more. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-740. 4740. Welcome back. It was uh, Hugo de Garris, uh, I believe, was a gentleman I spoke to a number of years ago, a uh, researcher in uh, artificial intelligence, also known as evolvable hardware. And uh, at the time, I believe, he was working on an artificial brain uh, in, in China. Uh, but he, again, stated that there would be a major war between the supporters and opponents of intelligent machines, and there would be billions of deaths. Um, he said this is almost inevitable before the end of the 21st century, and he suggests that uh, artificial intelligences may simply eliminate the rest of us, uh, and we'd be, we'd be powerless to stop them. But you, you do talk about uh, uh, artificial intelligence in the UFO singularity, Micah Hanks, and I'm just wondering what that might have to do with UFOs or how it might help us sort of learn about UFOs. Well, there are a few reasons, uh, Richard, that, uh, that that those two subjects, UFOs and artificial intelligence, may come into play with one another. Uh, one is that, uh, as you'd outlined during the last segment, uh, explaining Hugo's theory there, uh, what if we had a portion of the population that was enhancing themselves technologically, whereas maybe there was another portion that either for economic reasons, maybe there was a disparity and they didn't have access to this information or this uh, technology. They couldn't afford it or maybe it was being kept away by a portion of the elitist, you know, uh, population, uh, you know, some as- aspect or element of government or something like that. Uh, there could be any number of scenarios that would play out in the mind that would allow uh, one to, you know, surmise why there could be one group that has this technology and one that doesn't, and then some sort of a conflict erupting between the two. This is very similar to a theory that's been put forth by a colleague of mine, Rich Dolan, who's a UFO historian and researcher, and he calls it the breakaway civilization. And so if we wanted to speculate for a moment that there could be an aspect of humanity that literally could utilize 
technological developments that are kept suppressed from the mainstream and what most of us know to exist, and they utilize that to their own benefit and become what you know he calls essentially a breakaway civilization. That could be one aspect of the UFO mystery just as well, and this would entail utilizing advanced intelligences, technologies, perhaps artificial intelligences, uh, for utilization of uh, you know this kind of uh, technology that, for whatever reason, would be, uh, you know, come under the uh, the mastery of one group of individuals and and not to the rest. So, although that sounds very much like something that could occur in science fiction, that is always a possibility. But coming back to that notion of sci-fi and the way that you know films often portray this sort of thing, uh, with all reverence, uh, you know, reverence to someone like Hugo, who uh, you know I think uh, you know probably is very qualified to speak about this sort of a thing. I, I have to say that again, I see that Hollywood so. Uh, easily influences people's uh, perceptions of how artificial intelligence will come about and then again what will occur in a world where we as humans live alongside intelligence that may be greater than ours. Uh, I would argue that uh, you know quite the contrary uh, there seems to be a trend between people who gain intelligence and then of course the, uh, the the morals and the code of conduct that comes with the attainment of great power while obviously in history we have seen that people who attain great power often misuse it as we get older uh, as a civilization as we you know grow so many years you know hence past you know the second world war and and we attain greater technologies you know that for purposes of uh, destruction could level the you know if not a country a planet perhaps uh, we we have refrained from using those we made it through the cold war without you know launching a, a mutually assured self-destruction style attack as so many feared would occur maybe we are advancing and maybe with intelligence, we learn better how to cope with and utilize that that technology, and maybe artificial intelligence that exceeded our own levels would do the same. And hopefully, we could say that the, that there would be a more positive outcome. Now, again, maybe I'm just being an optimist, but I do think that there are two sides to every equation, and that often Hollywood, with films like Terminator and some of these, you know, it can kind of give us an impression of what may be that is not entirely accurate in terms of what may actually be. Uh, Rich Dolan is a frequent guest on, on the program, and, and uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by his theory on these breakaway civilizations. I, I give that a lot of credence. You know, I think that might explain a great deal of the callousness that some of these uh, elite power brokers have for the rest of us, because they have no they have no dog uh, in the hunt anymore. They've got no skin in this game because I don't know they're living in some subterranean uh, a cavern, or or. Uh, again, going back to, to statements like uh, um, uh, Ben Rich and, 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 and others uh, that, that have been interviewed by Paula Harris and so forth, they already have these deep space platforms. They don't give, they don't give a tinker's behind what happens here to the rest of us on planet Earth because they're already off-world. Uh, anyway, let me, uh, let me grab a call here. Andrew has been very patient waiting in Palmerston, Ontario. Andrew, welcome to The Conspiracy well, thank Show. Thank you very much. Um, I have uh, a comment and then one question after that. And I think in regard to human and uh, alien uh, genetic engineering and having a hybrid, I think what has happened, in my view, is that the aliens have evolved to such an extent having these mental capacities and uh, telepathic communication to, to almost an extreme end. And I think what they've done is neglected their... Because of that, they may have neglected some of their... Um, uh, physical powers, and I think uh, looking at humans being much stronger than the greys, for example, then they would like to have a hybrid in which they can have some of the human strength in them. 
Andrew, let me just hold on. Uh, you hold on as well. We'll come back and we'll get your, your question, your follow-up question. That's a great uh, lead-in to this discussion. Back with more of my conversation with Micah Hanks, the author of The UFO Singularity. If you've got a line, hold on to it. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Micah Hanks from uh, the UFO Singularity fame uh, joins us and uh, stays with us for the next 15 minutes or so. Andrew from Palmerston, um, interesting comment on perhaps the motivation behind the the uh, the abduction phenomena. It could be some sort of uh, genetic engineering uh the greys abducting humans uh, because essentially they, um, they they want they want to develop a hybrid a human alien hybrid. Uh, Andrew, did you want to uh, follow yes, that up? Well, with, you had a question as well. Yeah. Well, the other question I have is uh, regarding HARP. You know, and they've been sending these strong signals for years and years. What I was interested to learn is. What is the result of all these years of using power like that and transmitting these huge amounts of frequencies? And what is good come out of it? That's what I'm interested in. Well, maybe HARP is best left for, for another program, although, yeah. I don't know, maybe Micah has a, has a comment on that. But do you want to address maybe first the, the alien abduction uh, motivation first, Micah? Well, you know, uh, when it comes to alien abduction, again, uh, you know, I'm not going to ever say that uh, one thing is occurring and, and something else is not simply because I have a preconception toward or a bias toward belief or disbelief. Now, what I will tell you is that in many instances, uh, and, and of course, you know, much to the dismay of my friends who actually claim to be abductees themselves, you know, scientifically, I have a hard time justifying claims of alien abduction. I do think that there's something clearly going on, but there is a tremendous lack of physical evidence supporting this. Now, does, does this mean that there is a very clever technology behind this and that they're capable of, you know, uh, distancing themselves from what we are capable of recognizing as an actual physical presence in our midst? Maybe that is the case. Uh, but I also think sometimes that there are other levels of not only reality but also human perception that come into play when it comes to term, uh, in, in terms of trying to understand with and reconcile with the abduction mythos that has emerged into our culture. I have a lot of questions about it. I could probably author an entire book about you know, really what's happening with abduction. I haven't seen a lot of evidence that really supports the idea that we are in the midst of an ongoing, elaborate genetic hybridization um, you know, program as enacted by these alien greys or something along those lines. And that could be. Who knows? But again, I haven't seen scientific evidence for that. And it may be that in the coming years, part of this technological growth that I'm talking about in the UFO singularity will allow us to utilize new kinds of technologies, and that may become apparent. It may be that that's exactly what's happening, and we will come to terms with that, or perhaps we'll rise against it and fight it off. Who knows, you know, if it's something that we consider to be a bad thing. Um, but, you know, I do think that uh, there's obviously some sort of a non-human intelligence component that fits in here. I just couldn't tell you if it's something that's tampering with our genetics. Uh, let's talk about some of the, the, the current scientific trends that you say are leading us to advanced technology that we have observed in various UFO reports. 
Sure. Well, you know, I think that a lot of the time when we talk about UFO reports, uh, as we, of course, do with the UFO singularity, we're talking about advanced aviation, you know, or aeronautics that would allow, you know, an aircraft to travel several hundreds of thousands of, you know, light years from one planet to another and, of course, several thousand miles an hour right here in Earth's atmosphere. There are already uh, aircraft that have been observed at least since, you know, the uh, late 1940s, early 1950s that appear to allow... Uh, whoever the occupants of these craft are, to do this. If they were physical beings, the speed at which many of these uh, UFO craft are purported to travel uh, should not be very kind to uh, physical occupants unless they're utilizing an advanced variety of, of physics uh, You know, to not only perhaps allow the movement of that craft, but also to preserve the occupants therein. Now, there are ways of getting around that. One could be that these craft aren't actually uh, controlled uh, by a physical occupant at all. They could be remote controlled. Uh, as Rich Dolan has uh, put forth, there could be a variety of machine intelligence with them. And furthermore, if we were to speculate that there was some sort of an advanced biological entity that had supplanted the physicality or the biology of themselves with aspects of, or, you know, whether it be a, cyber, a cybernetic or a cyborg kind of a, kind of a, you know, a, a, you know, recreation of themselves, uh, something literally almost along the lines of the Transformer films that we see where we have these, you know, almost entirely robotic beings. You know, or if it's something that is, uh, you know, something even further beyond that, you know, I could even you know, say that it's something that may be beyond what we could really speculate about right now with our known levels of intelligence. There could be any number of ways that we, uh, an advanced intelligence might get around the problems associated with UFO craft. Now, in the UFO singularity, something I try and look at is the utilization of, again, greater than average levels of, you know, attainable human intelligence today, natural levels of human intelligence, and how a far more advanced uh, being might literally begin to perceive reality differently. This is where, Richard, uh, in, in terms of the way that I look at, rather than calling it time travel, non-temporal phenomenon comes into the question. I, I've argued that if a you know, highly advanced, perhaps, you know, even cybernetically modified or enhanced uh, brain becomes far more efficient than natural brain function in humans today. This kind of an entity, this kind of an intelligence might be capable of perceiving beyond the, the known limits of space and time that we know. And again, at that point, if humanity attains that kind of intelligence and that technology, what will we know about our universe? Will we be able to perceive aliens? Will we be able to see into the future as well as the past? Functional telepathy, these kinds of things. There are a lot of questions that, uh, again, I do think work into the UFO equation as well. All right, let's say hello to Keith in Rochester. Good evening, Keith. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, I approach these topics from a point of morality. Abductions were mentioned, and that's underhanded behavior. Until these creatures are willing to come to us man-to-man -man as stand-up guys, which would mean basically landing on the White House lawn, I don't care how advanced they are, I just shrug them off. As, uh, if they don't come to us, uh, again, stand-up, they probably really don't have anything to offer to us. I always refer people to the very famous 1951 movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. We need that Michael Rennie character to come to us and to reach out to us. And if they aren't willing to uh, shake hands with us, I'm asking the guests, uh, really, what good are they? What is their true worth? Excellent point, Keith. Micah, your thoughts? Oh, 
Yeah, Keith, uh, I have to agree with you. If, if there is indeed a physical and perhaps an extraterrestrial presence underlying the UFO enigma, uh, what's so troubling about it is the sub subversive element there. The fact that there, is, uh, there, there isn't this willingness to come out, shake hands, uh, you know, make contact. It, with this popular ancient aliens meme that we see appended to the popular television program of the same name, you know, we have this notion that extraterrestrial intelligence is did just that in ancient times, that they came down to Earth and that they interacted with humankind and that they literally granted us some sort of advanced technology that helped or maybe even directly you know, manipulated, modified us to make us what we are today. Uh, you know, many would argue that that undermines natural human ingenuity. However you want to look at it, uh, why would they do this in the ancient past and perhaps not do it today? Or if they did it in the ancient past, was it just as subversive as it appears to be today? Either way, that secrecy is very unsettling, and if, I'll say if there's anything to the abduction claims, uh, then that's a part of it that is really troubling to me. Why, why do you remain in the shadows? Why don't you come out and let us know what you're doing? And are we not allowed to be willing participants? Are we made to be essentially cattle? Who knows? Uh, Keith in Rochester, thank you for the call as always. Well, there, uh, there are those who, who theorize uh, that... The abduction phenomena, uh, whether you want to include crop circles uh, and animal mutilations uh, in that whole sort of grab bag, uh, that that's all, even the sort of the, the, um, the view, the, 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 the common view of what UFOs are, you know, little green men traveling from distant, gal distant galaxies, galaxies, this has all been uh, created as a cover story uh, in order to distract us from what's really going on, and what's really going on may, in fact, have more to do with, as you say, uh, advanced human technological uh, uh, human technologies, uh, which may include, uh, uh, you know, visits from our future. Uh, in other words, the UFO myth um, has been created uh, in order to distract from something that's even more unimaginable. You know, that's unsettling, too. And I often think about that. We hear about, you know, some of the conspiracy types like Bill Cooper and, and many others over the past, you know, several decades who have come forth and said, you know, there's a lot less going on here that has to do with actual extraterrestrials and more with the creation, the intentional creation of a meme in our culture and in our societies that is geared toward leading people, or rather, more appropriately, misleading people into believing one thing so that something else entirely can be going on behind the scenes. But here's what we're left with, Richard. We're left with the, the absolutely... <laughs> pardon the term, but unalienable truth, I guess. <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> Maybe not as best used, but certainly sounded good for the circumstances. You can't, you can't remove the, the fact that we are dealing with some variety of what appears to be an intelligently controlled uh, technology in our midst, or perhaps several varieties of different phenomena that at times appear to be intelligently controlled, at times maybe do not appear to be any kind of mechanized framework or any kind of a machine, but they are nonetheless representative of some kind of intelligence or consciousness. And so, uh, you know, whether it be a space-time anomaly, a physics aberration, you know, a non-human, non-physical intelligence that communicates through some sort of a brain state or altered state, you know, there are different levels of ways that different kinds of you know anomalous activities could occur but with ufos we clearly see some technological presence whose are they they have to belong to someone so again do you do you um pin any hopes on let's say 2112 as being the year that this will all sort of make sense and 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 this will be sort of disclosure day for lack of a better term 
You know, I don't really. Uh, I think, uh, you know, again, for, in purposes of framing, uh, you know, the, the sort of the history and the lineage of these sorts of things, uh, again, I, in the book I look at uh, the year 1911 and, uh, you know, Thomas Edison supposing what will technology in 100 years be like? And at this pivotal period in our history that many uh, pinned to the year 2012 and, of course, the end of the Mayan calendar, we're beyond that now. And unless we're all a bunch of ghosts, you know, we survived somehow, too. Many feel that there was a transformation. Maybe there was a change. Some would even argue it was an imperceptible kind of change and that we're still undergoing that change right now. It's already, you know, that the beginning has taken place and we're in the midst of it now. Whatever the case may be, I say, what did, you know, what, what about the future? What in a hundred years will we look back on ourselves today and be correct about? Will the future that we predict today be what we think it is? I think it'll be a future full of vast potentials that are so far out and so, well, again, alien to us that we can't even imagine many of those potentials. But in terms of the actual date that I would suppose that we'll begin to see a lot of this, to borrow from the uh, the others of the futurist and the transhumanist ilk, um, what uh, Ray Kurzweil refers to as singularitarians would probably tell you is that around the year 2029 or 2030, we would begin to see the beginning of what's called the knee of the curve, the point at which the beginnings of these technologies will become apparent and we'll begin to see those kinds of trends that will lead to an unimaginable future. And that, of course, will be that uh, post-singularity future where we will be dealing with artificial intelligences, new kinds of aeronautics, and a variety of other kinds of technologies that we couldn't even conceive of today that will fundamentally change who we are and how we view ourselves in the context of our greater reality in the universe as we know it. Uh, Micah, uh, tell us about uh, your website, Graylian Report. What can we find there? Well, you'll find everything at the Grayling Report. You know, I deal with everything from politics and history to conspiracies, something your listeners, of course, will enjoy. I'm best known as a ufologist these days, and so there'll be a lot of nuts and bolts reporting and, and dealing with, you know, and trying to understand UFOs. We also talk about cryptozoology from time to time, and that website is www.gr. Alien. That's GraylianReport.com. You can find me on Twitter, Micah Hanks. Easy enough to find there. There's also a Facebook like page for the Graylian Report. Lots of stuff people can follow and a podcast each week of the same name, Graylian Report. Just check it out online. Of course, you can Google that just as well. And uh, I've also linked up to your website at uh, RichardSarrett.com. They just go to tonight's show and click on Micah Hanks and it'll take you right to Graylian Report. Micah, real pleasure meeting you. And uh, I'm hoping to get down to the uh, International UFO Congress in uh, Phoenix uh, next month. I know you'll be there. Uh, you'll be speaking about uh, this very topic, I'm guessing. I certainly will. And Richard, yeah, let's grab a cup of coffee if you do, okay? Wonderful. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Micah. Micah Hanks. All right. Uh, and you can also say hello to me at Twitter at Richard Serrett. S-Y-R-E-T-T. Richard Serrett. Love to hear from you. And once again, a very special hello to our new affiliate in Springfield, Missouri, KWTO.
Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome. Just uh, looking at an email, uh, we'll just received this, I think, uh, oh, this is from John Rappaport, our good friend uh, John Rappaport from No More Fake News, or someone forwarded it, forwarded it to me from uh, John's website. Uh, this comes from a police officer in Australia, and uh, with a caveat that this data has not been formally substantiated, um, Ed Chennel a police officer in Australia. This is sort of apropos of this ongoing uh, um, gun control debate, and uh, I've taken some flack for weighing in as a Canadian uh, who supports the Second Amendment. And uh, anyway, from Ed writes, here's a thought to warm some of your hearts. He says, Hi, Yanks. I thought you'd like to see the real figures from down under. It has now been 12 months since gun owners in Australia were forced by a new law to surrender 640,381 personal firearms to be destroyed by our own government, a program costing Australia taxpayers more than $500 million. The first year results are now in. Australia-wide, homicides are up 6.2%. Australia-wide, assaults are up 9.6%. Australia-wide, armed robberies up 44%. Yes, 44%. In the state of Victoria, lone homicides with firearms are now up 300%. Quote, uh, and then he says, note that with the law-abiding citizens tur- uh, turning their guns in, the criminals did not. Criminals still possess their guns. While figures over the previous 25 years showed a steady decrease in armed robbery with firearms, this has changed drastically upward in the last 12 months, since the criminals now are guaranteed that their, their prey is unarmed. This has also been a dramatic, there has also been a dramatic increase in break-ins and assaults of the elderly while the resident is at home. Australia politicians are at a loss to explain how public safety has decreased after such monumental effort and expense was expended in successfully ridding Australian society of guns. You won't see this on the American Evening News or hear your governor or member of the state assembly disseminating this information. The Australian experience speaks for itself. Guns in the hands of honest citizens save lives and property, and yes, gun control laws affect only the law-abiding citizens. All right. Um, and also on uh, the website richardserrett.com, just in the last couple of days, I've posted a, uh, a video uh, which came from NBC News. And this was, I believe, the day after the horrible shooting at Sandy Hook in um, Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, in, in this newscast, I've, I've posted the video. Just click on uh, the slideshow there. NBC reported... Lanza, Adam Lanza, only used handguns in the shooting. And here you'll see Pete Williams verifying uh, a number of state and federal officials confirming that Lanza used handguns, that they had recovered four handguns inside the school and the uh, assault rifle, which was later said to be used in the shooting, was in his car. Again, that's from that's an early report from NBC. Someone was good enough to capture that and uh, and preserve it because apparently you can't find that on uh, on the NBC archives anymore. Isn't that strange? All right, uh, we haven't heard the last from that, obviously. 
And I thank you for your continued uh, emails and thoughts, some of them positive and some of them rather negative, I must say. Um, however, that's what the show is about, and that's what good, healthy discourse is all about. And, uh, and, and, and uh, nowhere do I enjoy good, healthy discourse more than it, when it comes to uh, the, the worlds of science and the paranormal. A couple of weeks ago, I had Dr. James Stein on the program. And uh, Dr. James Stein is a, um, a mathematician of some renown. You may remember his book, How Math Explains the World. Uh, I quite enjoyed that. Had him on a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about his new book, which is The Paranormal Equation, A New Scientific Perspective on Remote Viewing, Clairvoyance, and Other Inexplicable Phenomena. And, and while James, you know, he, he's a, a, a skeptic that I actually have time for because he's not a debunker. He's interested in debating this, and, and there aren't a lot that are you know, from the scientific realm. Uh, but he's open to these possibilities, and he admits that there are things ultimately that are unexplainable, uh, and that there, are, there is a certain uh, view uh, of the universe um, which basically admits this, you know, that there, there, are, there are phenomena that we will never be able to explain. So we're going to sort of get the other side of this equation now, with my next guest, he's been with us a number of times, uh, well, I guess just once in, in, in the past, but we're delighted to have him again. Chris Carter is with us. He is uh, the uh, author of a brand new book entitled Science and the Afterlife Experience, Evidence for the Immortality of Consciousness. He's a writer-philosopher who, again, affirms the evidence of life beyond death exists and has been, a, and has been around for millennia, predating any organized religion. He focuses on three key phenomena in the book, reincarnation, apparitions, and communications from the dead. He reveals 125 years, 125 years of documented scientific studies by independent researchers and the British and American Societies for Physical Research that rule out hoaxes and hallucinations and prove these afterlife phenomena are real. Chris Carter, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good to have you back. How are you? Fine, Richard. How are you? Very well, and congratulations on science and the afterlife experience. 125 years um, of studying this phenomenon. Walk us through some of the highlights um, in, in terms of experiments and studies that have been conducted during that, that, that vast amount of time. Well, the evidence actually goes uh, long, long beyond the last 125 years. It was just in the last 125 years that there's been a systematic examination of the various forms of evidence which suggests uh, the continuation of life after biological death. Uh, during the 1880s, a number of leading intellectuals in both England, the United States, and uh, other European countries came together, and these people were disillusioned with the simple faith of their forefathers, basically because of the rise of uh, Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection operating on random variation. And uh, the doctrine of materialism, which essentially states that everything has a material cause, uh, was starting to become prevalent in society and these dissident thinkers longed to take on the materialists at their own game. And so number of them, Henry Sidgwick, Cambridge philosopher, Oliver Lodge, one of the top physicists of his day, Frederick Myers, a classic scholar, uh, the Balfours, one of whom became Prime Minister of England, uh, William James in the United States. They formed the British and American Society for Psychical Research, and they began an in-depth study of apparitions, um, 
deathbed visions and uh, more than anything else, um, alleged communication with the dead via human mediums. And the evidence they uh, gathered is actually very impressive. It, and when you present that kind of evidence uh, to the scientific community, even people like uh, Dr. James Stein, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, again, uh, a skeptic that I have a lot of time for because he's willing to engage and in, 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 uh, uh, not just debunk. But because those people from the scientific community employ the scientific method, they want repeatable uh, observable phenomena. And, and when it comes to the, the paranormal or the supernatural uh, or apparitions, you, you just you don't get that. You can't put it under a microscope and so forth. And, and therefore, you'll never be able to satisfy them with simply, you know, uh, reams and reams and reams of anecdotal evidence. Someone saying, I saw this. And it's, even if it's corroborated by someone else, that's just it's never going to be good enough for them, is it? Uh, sorry, Richard, I disagree with that. Um, first, and first of all, much of the evidence is not anecdotal. Much of the evidence, especially for psychic abilities such as telepathy, is experimental in nature. And it has been repeated in laboratories around the world. No, that's true. I'm sorry. Um, I, was, I was referring to things like apparitions. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. But let's, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about definitely uh, uh, cyclical research or, or psychic research because I, I, I had a, an occasion to meet Russell Targ up in Palo Alto recently, just published a book, and he told me right. that, that the evidence uh, for things like ESP, um, you know, it's, there's more evidence for that than there is, for example, that, that bare aspirin can cure headaches. Uh, for him, you know, the, the, the jury's in. But let's talk about apparitions, for example. I mean, how do you convince a skeptic with, with what amounts to essentially anecdotal evidence? Well... I discuss uh, across two books. My previous book was Science and the Near-Death Experience, which I believe we discussed on a previous show. Yes. Much of the evidence there is not anecdotal. Some of it is, of course, because somebody has a heart attack at home and they you know, later relate their strange experiences. But much of it is not. Much of it has been done in terms of prospective studies by cardiologists around the world. Cardiologists are, of course, physicians who work with people who've had heart attacks or suffer from heart disease. Mm -hmm. And they've done these prospective studies, which means that they will interview everyone who's been resuscitated following a heart attack, say, over a 12 or 18-month period. And then they'll gather their data that way. Um, so that, those are not anecdotal reports. Uh, with regards to the three lines of evidence that I discuss in my latest book, Science and the Afterlife Experience, those would be children who remember previous lives, apparitions, as you pointed out, right. and... Uh, communication via human mediums from apparently from the deceased um, I apparitions yes by their very nature the reports must be anecdotal I mean how can you how can you do an experiment with an apparition um, on the other hand uh, the studies of apparitions have been very systematic and uh, allowing researchers to form generalizations about what apparitions typically look like how they behave uh, most of the time, for instance, um, the person seeing the apparition at first believes they're seeing a living person because apparitions typically appear completely normal and, are, and sometimes behave with a purpose of their own. Right. And I also mentioned cases in which animals have perceived apparitions. Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how one would, would quantify that, but how useful are photographs, video, 
and let's say audio recordings or EVPs in this field? Because we all know in in the era of, of Photoshop and so forth, I mean, you can you can you can make anything look pretty real uh, on a photograph or video. Are, are those useful in in uh, providing evidence for apparitions? Do you think at this point? I think they have a role to play. But I didn't discuss photographs of apparitions. I didn't discuss electric voice phenomena, the EVPs you mentioned, for a good reason. I want to concentrate on the most solid forms of evidence. When it comes to, uh, to reincarnation, um, I mean, again, some pretty compelling, some pretty compelling story. We have that, that young, uh, young boy from uh, Seattle, Washington. Um, who believed he had recurring uh, nightmares, going down in a fiery crash uh, in the Pacific Theater, even named the aircraft carrier that the, the plane flew from. And, and uh, um, let's, we'll take a time out. I hear the music creeping up. When we come back, let's talk about uh, the evidence for reincarnation. Chris Carter, the book is Science and the Afterlife Experience. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. smoke there's the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740 in his book science and the afterlife experience evidence for the immortality of consciousness uh, chris carter examines historic and modern accounts of detailed past life memories visits from the deceased and communications with the dead via medium and automatic writing as well as the scientific methods used to confirm these experiences he explains how these findings on the afterlife have been ignored and denied because they're incompatible with the prevailing doctrine of materialism. Uh, I was just referring to the James Leininger case uh, before the, uh, the break, and to me that's one of the most compelling uh, cases, um, evidence of, of reincarnation, although, I, again, to lay my cards on the table, it doesn't fit uh, into my, um, my, my, my faith tradition. Uh, as an Orthodox Christian, I, it, but I, I believe, having witnessed a number of past life regression sessions, that there is something genuine going on here. There's a real experience. I don't have an explanation. I know you offer some alternative theories, but let me get your take quickly on on, on the Leninger case, the Leninger case, uh, Chris. Well, uh, that's not a case that I discuss in my book, so I have to admit that I'm not very familiar with it. Um, I would like to say one thing, though, and that's that uh, people of faith have absolutely nothing to fear from reading my book. Um, you know that uh, at one time, a belief in reincarnation was uh, quite common among Christians, uh, yes, especially is, in Southern Europe. Yeah, that's what I understand. It, yeah, no, I, I, was, I certainly, was, I, I agree. There's nothing to fear in this book. I just, I, I, having again witnessed this, these past life regression sessions, I think there's something real here. I just don't know what it is. Right. So anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt, but but um, talk to me about some of the the, the prevalent cases that you, that you talk about, the, the the ones that stand out for you in terms of of, of re- reincarnation. Some of the best examples. Well, reincarnation 
uh, is typically associated with the religions of the Far East, with Buddhism, Hinduism, and so forth. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, reincarnation is a fairly common belief that's found all over the world. Various tribes in Alaska and on the uh, western coast of the United States and Canada, Native American tribes, I mean, uh, believe in reincarnation. It appears that the Druses of Lebanon believe in it. Um, uh, the Scandinavians, the Vikings apparently believed in reincarnation. Some of the ancient Greeks, such as Pythagoras. So the belief in reincarnation has not been historically confined to uh, Southeast and Far East Asia, but rather has been found all over the world. So the question is, why? Well, I argue in my book, the reason is, is that children all over the world uh, have historically and up to the present time claim to have remembered previous lives. Typically between the ages of two and three, the child starts discussing memories of a previous life, often giving the person's name, their occupation, where they lived. And uh, this will continue. They'll often show characteristics of the individual. Sometimes they'll behave more like adults than like children. And typically the memories begin to fade by around six or seven. They're usually gone by the time the child's eight or nine years old. Although some of the uh, uh, habits uh, of the previous personality will persist. So a psychiatrist named Ian Stevenson began studying these cases in the 1960s in a very systematic manner. And he eventually concluded that uh, reincarnation is the most plausible explanation of the data. Um, so as I said, everywhere such cases are found, they usually begin talking about it at a very early age. Um, in almost every culture, male subjects outnumber the female ones. And interestingly, the proportion of previous personalities who died violent deaths greatly exceeds the incident of violent death in all cultures in which these cases are found. So there seems to be a sense of unfinished business about these children who claim to remember previous lives. Well, a perfect example would be the, the Pollock twins, the case of the Pollock twins. You men mentioned violent death. Talk to me about that case. Oh, yes, that case occurred in England. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, that was in 1957. A uh, crazed automobile driver killed these two little girls. One was 11. The other one was uh, 6. And uh, the parents were grieving, but their father for some reason, believed the two girls would be reincarnated. And uh, a few months, few months later, uh, his wife became pregnant. He thought that his wife would have twins. She went to see a physician. The physician said, no, it's just a single fetus. There's no twins. But lo and behold, twins were born. And uh, as soon as the twins began to talk, they remembered uh, being the... Uh, the girls were run over by a car a few years previously. And they had some pretty and interesting distinguishing marks in terms of birthmarks and so forth that matched the, the, the previous children. Yes, they had birthmarks that matched the previous, previous children. And, uh, yeah, and uh, they, claimed, they claimed toys that had belonged to each of the, chi uh, each of the deceased sisters. Um, and... Uh, yeah, they also identified when they, when they went back to – they took a car trip one time to their old neighborhood where the, where the previous personalities had grown up, the previous two girls. And the girls spontaneously uh, mentioned things before they appeared, uh, a park where they used to play, 
and so forth. It, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable case, and and you know there are you cite um, a number of them in in the book, but you know there are just and I've read um, um, Stephen's work, and and uh, I think he's since passed away, uh, but he's got yes. I think there's someone else who sort of picked up that that torch and is is continuing to do that work, um, but you offer some. What do you think might be going on? There are alternative theories as to 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 reincarnation. What, what, what do you think some of those might be? Well, there's cultural fantasy. There's essentially three exp- counter-explanations. Cultural fantasy, fraud, and super-extrasensory perception. Um, with regards to cultural fantasy, well, those can't explain cases. Those can't explain the universal nature of the cases. The children typically begin to remember the previous lives. As I said before, between the ages of two and three, and the memories fade. So by the time they're eight, nine years old, the memories are usually completely gone. Um, it also doesn't explain the high proportion of, of previous personalities that ended their lives with violence. With violence. Uh, it's much higher in all societies than the incident of violent death in the general population. So it can't explain that. It also can't explain cases in which uh, children claim to remember previous lives who are living in cultures where reincarnation is not a common belief. Cultural fantasy may explain some cases in perhaps India or parts of China, but it can't explain cases in which uh, the parents don't, don't want to hear their children talking about previous lives. Yet the cases continue. What about super uh, with, ESP? Well, there's a number of difficulties with uh, extrasensory perception or super extrasensory perception uh, as an explanation. Um, for example, it can't explain why subjects have difficulty recognizing people and places that have changed since the death of the previous personality. Uh, they can't explain you know, why they don't recognize houses that have changed color or people that have grown up. And um, typically, information acquired clairvoyantly or telepathically is not experienced as something remembered and usually the best telepaths make a predictable number of errors. We can see that some of these children uh, have made virtually no errors. And another difficulty is that the ESP hypothesis would seem to predict that we would occasionally find more than one child claiming to remember life of a certain deceased person and making statements about that person's life. But I haven't found a single case with more than one child making such a claim. Um, these children often show, uh, display the personality of the uh, deceased person whose life they claim to have remembered. And sometimes, often, these children convince uh, living friends and relatives of the deceased personality that they really are that deceased person come back. So are we really going to believe that a seven or eight-year-old can impersonate a deceased person they've never met well enough to convince their living relatives and friends. And uh, also, uh, extrasensory perception perhaps can be used to acquire knowledge, but it can't be used to acquire skills. And some of these children have spoken in languages which, they, which the previous personality spoke, which they didn't. Um, they've displayed, they've shown skills, skills in complicated dances or in uh, playing the Indian, Indian drums. So for all these reasons, extrasensory perception uh, cannot explain children who remember previous lives. 
What do you think the, the evidence indicates is the actual relationship between the mind and the brain? I think it indicates that the brain works as a two-way receiver transmitter, sometimes from body to mind, as in sense perception, and other times from mind to body, as in willed action. Now, the rival hypothesis is that the brain produces the mind, and I believe this has been proven false by the data. Um, what many people don't realize is that there's a lot of evidence to this effect, and I examined this evidence in great deal, especially in my second book, Science and the Near-Death Experience, but I also summarize this evidence, of course, in Science and the Afterlife Experience. The, that's an interesting concept, uh, that, the, that the brain would produce the mind. Certainly, um, you know, when we have these compelling um, stories of, of people, let's say, who have died on the operating table or have been, um, you know, uh, placed in some sort of a, um, you know, frozen animated state. Perhaps they've had their, their um, you know, their body temperature uh, brought down and their heart removed and so forth. Uh, and yet they have memories um, during the time that they were supposedly clinically dead for, you know, up to an hour or so forth or whatever the time frame is. So that would seem to discount the idea that the brain could produce the mind since, the, in this case, the mind is is surviving a physical death. Um, so if it's, not, if it's not the brain producing the mind, then does the mind exist outside the body? It's difficult to say. Uh... At our, with our current stage of ignorance, um, uh, I suppose if, <laughs> the theory of interactive dualism is essentially that uh, the, the relationship between the body and the mind, or the brain and the mind, is a is a two way relationship. Sometimes from body to mind, sometimes from mind to brain. Um, it seems that. Uh, the mind, our minds are attached to our brains during our biological lives, and at death, the connection is severed. And this is what, of course, near-death experiences would indicate, cases of terminal lucidity and uh, deathbed visions. The counter, the counter, uh, the counter argument, or one of the counter arguments is, well, I mean, if the if the, the mind, if the brain does not produce the mind, then how can you count for? Um, intoxication affecting our consciousness or a stroke or a blow to the head but the simple the simple uh, retort is is that any change in brain functioning such as that resulting from intoxication or a stroke should be expected to affect the brain's capacity as a receiver transmitter just as certainly as its capacity as a producer you're talking about um, uh, near-death experiences, and, and, and I believe it was the, uh, in, in Switzerland a number of years ago, they conducted some studies where they were stimulating uh, certain portions, certain cortexes of the human brain, uh, and it was said that they could produce what seemed to be an out-of-body experience or a near-death type experience by stimulating those cortexes. Um, wh wh what do you think of that? I mean, does that necessarily disprove the existence of, of a genuine near-death experience? No, not at all. That wasn't in Switzerland. That was actually in Canada. That's ah, okay. uh, Michael Persinger. Okay. He's a psychologist at Laurentian University. And he's mimicked temporal lobe seizure phenomena with electromagnetic stimulation. Um, I looked at his, uh, his data, and what you find is that um, his, his data doesn't, doesn't stack up to his claims. Uh, 
Yeah, I deal with him quite uh, in depth in my second book. Um, but the thing is, in 2004, Persinger's research was dealt a serious blow when a Swedish team attempted to replicate his findings using equipment borrowed from his lab. Now, a team at uh, Uppsala University in Sweden tested 89 undergraduate students, some of who were exposed to the magnetic field and some who were not. Persinger uh, uses a, a helmet, which generates an mag- electromagnetic field around the skull. So they used a double-blind protocol. That is, neither the people running the experiment nor the subjects being tested knew what the experiment was testing and whether any particular subject was part of the test group or the control group. And the Swedish team also consulted Persinger's collaborator, a fellow named Stanley Koren, to ensure the conditions for replication were absolutely optimal. So what did they find? Well, their team found no effect from the magnetic fields whatsoever. The only characteristic that predicted what the subjects reported was personality. That is, subjects who were rated highly suggestible on the basis of a questionnaire reported strange experiences when they were wearing the helmet whether the current was on or off. Hmm. So in other words, it's completely invalid. Interesting. Well, even if you could artificially induce uh, an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience, that doesn't necessarily discount the possibility that the genuine article exists. Uh, We'll uh, come back and continue our conversation with Chris Carter. Science and the afterlife experience. Evidence for the immortality of consciousness will make phone lines available to you as well for questions and comments. Back with more. Stay with us. governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Chris Carter is with us. Science in the Afterlife Experience, evidence for the immortality of consciousness. You know, after uh, uh, there was um, uh, this spiritualist movement uh, in England and then later in the United States, and... um, I believe they were uh, two young girls. They were the Fox sisters. Uh, they were um, involved in some sort of, you know, mediumship or clairvoyance, and and uh, we had, uh, you know, the uh, uh, these uh, cl- uh, cu- cupboards. People would uh, we would hear, you know, knocking sounds in, in the, inside these cupboards, or they would they would hear a horn playing. They would see. Um, musical instruments levitating and all these sorts of things and and supposedly the fox sisters finally admitted that this was uh, it, it was a hoax uh which you know many skeptics have sort of glommed onto and says you see it's it's all a hoax but there have been a number of um mediums over the years who have been who've been scrutinized uh scientifically and still you know confound or confound the uh, the skeptics i'm i'm thinking of uh, someone like carlos mirabelli who you talk about uh, in your book, uh, 
Science and the Afterlife Experience. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about Carlos Mirabelli. Yeah, uh, let's see. He was the Brazilian uh, medium. Right, right. Yeah, Mirabelli. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, he, um, he was a fellow born in Sao Paulo, uh, late 1880s. And he was carefully investigated by many eminent members of Brazilian society. He was investigated by physicians and university professors and uh, engineers, chemists, journalists. And uh, he was never found, as far as I know, his best evidence, he was never found to be a fraud. He was poorly educated. He spoke only Portuguese, perhaps some Italian because his parents were Italian immigrants. Um, but he... Uh, when he was in trance, he spoke over 25 different languages, and he also wrote messages, which purported to come from deceased people in various languages, in Japanese, in, um, in French, uh, in Hebrew, uh, in Syrian. And uh, one, of the, one of the oddest features was he wrote um, three pages in hieroglyphics, which have never been translated. Hieroglyphics? Yeah. Oh my. So how many? So how many people studied him? Some, uh, you mentioned uh, university professors, um, uh, chemists. It's like five hundred people or something studied this guy. Um, hundreds of people. Yes. Yeah. Would you Would you say that he is one of the the the, the best examples of uh, of a genuine medium? Not necessarily, because I don't know enough about his mediumship. Um, he certainly seems to have been one of the most powerful mediums who ever existed. But again, I don't know very much about him. And some uh, people would say that he occasionally cheated or there's a photograph of him cheating or something like that. I really can't comment on that. I think that uh, the medium studied by the British and American societies for psychical research, um, those are the mediums that I feel most confident about simply because they were, they were studied in such depth and they had uh, – um, with, for example, the medium Mrs. Piper. Um, she was originally from Boston, and then she was brought to England so, and, and studied in England to see if she was somehow, were somehow employing Confederates in Boston. Obviously, she wouldn't have any Confederates in England. She was studying in England. She, the results were every bit as good. Um, they had her trailed by detectives, never found the slightest uh, uh, suspic suspicious activity from her. So, yeah, Mrs. Piper uh, and others um, certainly seem to be genuine. What, are, what is the, the motivation, then, uh, of, of so many of these skeptics that are so eager to debunk, uh, not just, you know, reports of psychic phenomena, but also phenomena such as the near-death experience? Are they, just, um, are they just so married to materialist doctrine that... You know that to admit that that this evidence exists would totally de deconstruct their their existence, or what is it? Yeah, I discuss that in my book. After this is something that's peculiar to Western societies, and it basically has to do with the historical conflict in the West between science and religion. Uh, essentially, as I argued in my first book, uh, Science and Psychic Phenomena, this debate is not primarily about evidence. You have to remember that the debunkers and the deniers are defending an outmoded worldview in which psychic phenomena are simply not allowed to exist. I mean, it's essential to realize that most of these deniers and phony skeptics 
are in fact militant atheists and secular humanists. For various reasons, these people have an ideological agenda which is anti-religious and anti-superstitious. Now, one of the pillars of their opposition to religion and superstition is the doctrine of materialism. And that is the doctrine that uh, all events have a physical cause and that the brain therefore produces the mind. Now, if they conceded the existence of psychic abilities such as telepathy, and if they conceded the existence of the near-death experience as involving a genuine separation of mind from body, then this pillar of their opposition to materialism, this pillar of their opposition, I mean, to religion and superstition would crumble. In other words, materialism is the pillar or the foundation of their opposition. And if they admitted the reality of these abilities or of the near-death experience, then this pillar would crumble. And this, more than anything else, explains their dogmatic denial of the evidence that proves materialism false. All right, Chris, we'll take a time out. Chris Carter, Science and the Afterlife Experience. More of The Conspiracy Show after this. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Science in the Afterlife Experience, Evidence for the Immortality of consciousness. Chris Carter is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show. It's not something that you cover in the book, but let me just uh, get your take on this. This is an area that I find, I've always found fascinating, and I've seen these these famous photographs from the 20s or 30s, um, people like um, uh, Helen Duncan in England, what they, they refer to them as these manifestation mediums, uh, where during a seance, um, you would have um, uh, in these photographs would appear to be these sort of white sh- shrouded figures emanating from the actual medium, maybe ectoplasm coming out of the medium or what, you know, has been alleged to be ectoplasm. What, what is your, what did, do you have a, a take on these manifestation mediums, Chris? Well, I did not, I explicitly did not talk about physical mediumship, um, which is what you're talking about in my book. And the reason I didn't do that is because the history of physical mediumship is riddled with fraudulent mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, most of these people, uh, these mediums, uh, insisted on holding their seances in complete darkness, um, you, you know, which obviously brings up possibilities of fraud. Um, Houdini exposed several physical mediums. Uh, the members of the American and British Society for Psychical Research exposed several fraudulent physical mediums. Now, Mirabelli was a physical medium, probably the most impressive of them all, but I didn't even discuss Mirabelli's physical mediumship, only his mental mediumship, which, was what I, which is what I concentrate on in the book, and which is what the early psychical researchers in Britain and the United States concentrated upon. And there's several reasons for this. Um, a mental medium is someone who... It's usually a woman who goes into a trance and uh, then either writes, writes messages on a piece of paper or, uh, in the most dramatic cases of possession mediumship, appears to be possessed by the deceased person who then uses her vocal cords to speak directly to the sitters. Um, with mental mediumship, you have records of everything that the medium said or wrote and so the, the, the issue of mistaken eyewitness testimony simply doesn't arise. 
and uh, the ability to um, to bring forth fraudulent messages is obviously, uh, or any sort of fraudulent behavior, is obviously much, much uh, less or restricted with mental mediumship than with physical mediumship. So I concentrated on mental mediumship. Um, I'd like to read you a quote here. This is from my book where I quote a retired phys- professor of physics named Victor Stenger. He's one of these militant atheists that I was discussing. And here's the quote, 1995. He said, Unfortunately, most scientists lack the specific skills needed to distinguish fact from illusion in the world of magic. The universe does not lie. People lie. And so Lodge and other 19th century psychical researchers unwittingly allowed themselves to be fooled by the tricks of professional fortune tellers and slate-of-hand artists posing as spiritualists. Now here's something I later on write in my book. Um... I mentioned Mrs. Piper. She was the only professional medium in the group that the British and American societies for psychical research studied. Most of the other principal mediums were upper-class women and some of them well-known figures in public life who used pseudonames and kept their mediumship a closely guarded secret, even from their friends. These included Mrs. Verrill, a lecturer in classics at Newham College and a wife of Dr. A.W. Verrill. Her daughter, Helen, Mrs. Holland, the pseudonym of Mrs. Fleming, a sister of Rudyard Kipling, who lived in India. Mrs. Forbes, another pseudonym. And Mrs. Willett, a pseudonym for Mrs. Coombe Tennant, Justice of the Peace, and the first woman to be appointed by the British government as a delegate to the Assembly of the League of Nations. So, you know, at this point, I, I write the reader may recall with some amusement the remark by Skepter Victor Stenger, which opened part three of this book, quote, Lodge and other 19th century psychical researchers unwittingly allowed themselves to be fooled by the tricks of professional fortune tellers <laughs> and slate of hand artists posing as spiritualists. Yeah, it's, it's often uh, uh, couched in a very snide and arrogant uh, tone uh, when, when these uh, debunkers um, are, are involved in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in any sort of a dialogue. They rarely dialogue, they often monologue. Um, you mentioned Houdini a little earlier, and, and um, I, again, I know you don't cover this in the book, but the, the, the much-talked-about um, Houdini after-death experiment that he supposedly conducted with his wife, Bess, in which he, uh, on his... Well, before, you know, they, before he was, um, became ill after being punched in the stomach uh, in, Mon- in Montreal, he apparently had this agreement with Bess that, that if he you know, could come back from the other side, he would relate this coded message to her, and supposedly with the help of a, a medium, I believe it was Ford, um, she was able to do that. Now, my understanding was that initially she said, yes, this happened, it's absolutely true, and then afterwards, maybe through peer pressure or what, at, what have you, she recanted and said, no, it, it didn't happen. Do, is, that, uh, is that something that you've looked into at all, the, the Houdini after-death experiment, and what, if so, what are your thoughts? Well, to answer your question, yes, I have looked into it quite a bit, actually. Um, Houdini debunked fraudulent physical mediums. He didn't deal with mental mediums because uh, how could he? It wasn't his area of expertise. He was essentially a magician. So he simply didn't, didn't deal with the, the, the mental mediums. There was no way he could have debunked them anyway. Um, but yes, you're right. Houdini did have a pact with Bess that he would try to get a message across if message through if he could after he died. Um, 
Arthur Ford contacted Bess, the medium Arthur Ford, and said that he was getting messages from Houdini and he wanted to ha hold a seance with his wife Bess. So she did. I believe they held two seances and uh, a message came, came in code, the secret code that uh, Houdini and Bess used to use when he wanted to communicate with her um, in the middle of his magic shows. And uh, the message came through and yes, Bess was convinced that it really was her Harry and she wrote a letter to the journalist Walter Winchell um, saying that basically to, words to the effect that uh, people have accused me of lying about uh, the message I received through Arthur Ford. Well, I tell you this, uh, I'm not lying. The message came through and I believe it was genuine. And she maintained this. But then Harry Houdini's surviving friends, many of whom were militant atheists of this type that I've discussed earlier, they did all they could to try and convince Bess that Arthur Ford was a scoundrel and a fraud and he just tricked her. And uh, Bess was unfortunately not a very um, strong person. She was easily swayed. Um, and uh, she eventually, yes, she eventually did recant. She seems to have been very confused about the whole thing. And, and just to be clear, I mean, the, the encoded message that Arthur Ford received, supposedly, uh, it was, uh, there, were, there were ten coded um, words. Uh, I, just, I have them here in front of me uh, off the website. Pray, answer, say, now, tell, please, speak quickly, look, be quick. The tenth word is actually a phrase. Uh, and anyway, those coded messages are, are, um, are, to, are come together to make the word, uh, to form the word, I believe, I think is believe. Or Rosabel, Rosabel believe. Rosabel was his nickname for right for Bess. So I mean, there's there's no way Arthur Ford would could have known that beforehand, uh, unless I suppose he and Bess have some who have as some have suggested were involved uh, intimately or, or or so forth. I mean, but there's no really way of verifying this, uh, or or is there? I mean, is what is there anything else that we know now about this story? that tends to suggest Arthur Ford, in fact, did receive this message from the late Harry Houdini? The problem is it just happened so long ago, and all the principal actors are, of course, long gone. So I don't think we can ever really get to the bottom of it. I don't think Arthur Ford was a, was a scoundrel. He had many uh, admirers, including the astronaut Edgar Mitchell, the Queen of Sweden, among others. And... Uh, People, people say, okay, he could have learned about the code through normal means. He could have, uh, it was available in some obscure article or something. I'm not sure if that's true. It just happened too long ago, and I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of it, frankly. But I don't think the Houdini and Best case is uh, anywhere near as strong as some of the best cases I've described in Science and the Afterlife Experience. Have you ever been to a seance, Chris? No, I haven't. Would you be curious? I mean, I guess I'm curious as to know why, why not. Why, why haven't you? This is something that you study and, and write about. Why, um, why haven't you attended one? Well, never felt the need, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't mind at some point in the future. I, I know several people who are involved in this sort of research. I don't know any mediums, but I could easily, well, fairly easily, I suppose, find uh, one that's uh, supposedly reputable. Um, I had a friend who passed away recently um, at an early age, about a year ago. So I suppose you could say I have, uh, I certainly have reason 
Um, but I, uh, the book is not about my own experiences. Right, right. The book is about uh, serious research into these subjects. What is the state of, of research into these subjects today? For example, I mean, I, I mentioned a m- meeting with Russell Targ up in Palo Alto, and, and uh, of course he spearheaded the, uh, uh, the, the big study of, of psychic research at, at uh, Stanford, um, I guess in the 70s and 80s, or it was a period of about 25 years when they were funded by the, uh, the U.S. military. Um, but what, what's this? Is anyone doing serious academic research into this field now? For example, uh, with 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 um, near death experiences or afterlife communication. Most of the research into um, the evidence for an afterlife these days uh, is conducted by cardiologists who are doing those studies that I told that I just discussed earlier on the near-death experience. There's people all over the world. Uh, there's physicians in England, uh, the United States. There's Pim van Lommel, Dutch, Dutch cardiologist in Holland. Uh, he's doing these studies. So most of, the re- most of the exciting research these days is being done with the near-death experience. Um, as to why it's not being done, not very much research is being done with mediums, Basically, um, I think that uh, the best research, research has already been done. I think the best questions have been answered. The evidence is about as strong as it's going to get. And uh, I argue in my book that it's, in fact, very strong. So Science? I don't think there is a whole lot Sorry, to be done on. in the field of uh, working with mediums. Well, I'm heartened. In terms of get- I'm heartened, uh, no pun intended, heartened to know that the, the, that the cardiologists are actually looking into the near-death experience. Um, in any event, uh, congratulations on science and the afterlife experience, evidence for the immortality of consciousness. Chris, always a pleasure to talk to you. All right. And uh, by the way, if your listeners would like to learn more about the book, they can always uh, have a look at the book's website. So the book's website has the same title as the book. So it's www.scienceandtheafterlifeexperience.com. Terrific. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you for, uh, for listening. Uh, next week on the program, Sean David Morton will be along to talk about the secret space program, Area 51. As a young, a young boy, uh, his father worked at Northrop, so he met a lot of the, uh, the astronauts uh, from the early, you know, the Gemini uh, program and so forth, Mercury and the Apollo program. And uh, they showed him some home movies, he said, uh, that just, you know, raised the, uh, the hairs in the back of his neck and, and told him some things not to be believed. But... You must believe once you hear Sean David Morton, and he'll be along next week uh, on the program. Hope you can join me. In the meantime, thank you to Tim Spreen for production, and uh, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.